Hi, I'm Eric Voss. And I'm Philip Molina. And Adventures Endgame was the best of emotional roller coasters. Roller coasters that redefine quantum physics and kill your best friends and require two people to break it down because those roller coasters are not safe. There is so much movie to break down. Three hours of satisfying nods to Marvel past, an even subtler layer of meaning hidden in the visual and background details, and little sneaky winks from the filmmakers to reward obsessives like us for rewatching the movie over and over and over and over again, which we already have done and we haven't slept. We are gonna Cover it all, scene by scene, and spoiler warning! Spoiler warning in case, you know, we've already predicted anything too right and your life is already ruined, sorry. If you somehow haven't seen the movie yet, what's it like to have your mind still intact? <sighs> Must feel nice. Avengers Endgame opens on the farm home of Clint Barton, Hawkeye, MIA, and Infinity War, and now facing his turn at heartbreak. His opening line is an archery lesson to his daughter Lila, played by Ava Russo, real-life daughter of co-director Joe Russo. He says, you see where you're going? Now let's worry about how you get there. Hearing this over the opening image of an arrow tip reflects Endgame's deeper meaning as a story about destinations and trajectories. In this coming time heist, a term coined from a guy that Clint last saw clinging to one of these arrow tips, identifying the destinations will be a lot easier of a challenge than the meticulously precise trajectory that they must bullseye to succeed at it. So already here, we're noticing some nods to past MCU films. Hawkeye wears an ankle monitor, which he and Scott Lang both had to wear after their involvement in Civil War because they're the two family men and they couldn't get on Team Cap. They couldn't go on the run and abandon their families. Also, this exact target that they're practicing on appeared already in Clint's barn in Age of Ultron and Clint calls his daughter Hawkeye, which is actually is kind of crazy. That name almost never gets said out loud in the MCU. It's like he's ashamed of it, but it does indicate that maybe Lila Barton might be being set up as a future Kate Bishop legacy figure. Ah, but not so fast because you can't really fire an arrow when you're a pile of dust. Oh, All of Clint's family. Lila, his wife Laura, his sons Cooper and Nate, they all dust away and if you listen closely, the sound mixers work in some ominous rumble of thunder that accompanied the snap dramath in Infinity War in Wakanda. Oh God! Oh. No, 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 no! Groot! No! Yes, I, I'm calling it Snapter Math. I will never call it the Decimation. Moving on to the Marvel Studios title, which erased all the dusted characters who used to be there, like Black Panther and Star-Lord and Groot, and left only the six original Avengers. They also erased Ant-Man, which is kind of rude, because dude wasn't dead, but he was just in the quantum realm, too. The survivors, I guess that is as good as being dusted, yeah. but not to a rat. And the music here is Dear Mr. Fantasy by Traffic, and that's a song that must have been on like the Zune that Yondu left for Peter Quill back in Guardians Volume 2. The lyrics though perfectly reflect what we're asking Tony Stark to do in this movie. Dear Mr. Fantasy, play us a tune. Do anything. Take us out of this gloom. Make it snappy. Please don't be sad if it was a straight mind you had. We wouldn't have known you all these years. Tony is our Mr. Fantasy and rescuing the universe from the post-Thanos gloom with a snappy move of his own, all from the mad scientist who, maybe if he had had a straight mind all those years ago, we wouldn't have known you all these years, these 11 years that we got with him. So Stark and Nebula are on board the Benatar. They're drifting out in space away from Titan. They're flicking these folded footballs. Not only does this foreshadow Stark flicking Ant-Man later in the film, football will essentially be the name of the game in the movie's third act, with Stark's gauntlet as the football being passed from Avenger to Avenger on this huge rush to the goal line. Though with all this unnecessary roughness, it's more like rugby. Nebula ends up winning this game, a first for her, considering she always loses against Gamora throughout their youth when they would have to 
bar for Thanos, leading to her becoming a walking pile of scraps. In the Infinity Gauntlet comics, Nebula has a massive victory in this comeback against Thanos, and this endgame film shows Nebula's first on-screen victory. Then Tony records a goodbye message to Pepper in his helmet saying they've been stranded for 22 days, one day for every MCU movie, which mm. would have been a nice way for him to pass that time, but he probably didn't have access to Netflix. Stark also made a similar helmet recording for Pepper in Iron Man 3, and here he begins it by saying not to post it on social media, which is both a meta comment to fans to not spoil Endgame on social media, but it's also a callback to the opening of the first Iron Man. I don't want to see this on your MySpace page. God, that is such an old movie now. Tony ends the message by signing off saying, it's you, it's always been you, which is what he told Pepper when he made her CEO of Stark Industries in Iron Man 2. It's you. It's always been you. And as he says this, Tony slides his thumb along the helmet's eyepiece as if wiping away a tear. The helmet is scarred and damaged on its right side, foreshadowing Stark's appearance at the moment of his death, mortally wounded from his gauntlet snap on his right side. Captain Marvel then rescues Tony and Nebula, and from watching this movie alone, it's not totally clear how Carol Danvers knew where to find him and if she just stumbled upon him or something. The post-credit scene of Captain Marvel did show her arriving at Avengers headquarters on Earth and that scene wasn't in this movie so maybe just Carol learned from Rocket where the Benatar's homing signal was and tracked it that way. Sure, also that would mean that Thor was not interested in saving them. Who knows? He's, he's too drinking. busy eating. Yeah. yeah. When she then tows them back home though, Tony is now struggling to stand. Part of that is because of Earth's gravity since Titan and space have lighter gravity than Earth. But also, Tony has become like incredibly frail, and it looks as though I'd hope that the visual effects team is the one who digitally thinned him down a lot, and that created a really interesting contrast beside Cap. You gotta remember, Chris Evans was also digitally thinned down in the first Captain America, so this is visually right here linking Tony Stark with the brave sacrificial hero, Steve Rogers, what he started as, and kind of near the end for Tony. But we're gonna actually get to more on Stark and Cap's opposite endpoints later. Inside Avengers HQ, the screen shows other MCU snap victims, including, oh my god, Dr. Eric Selvig from the Thor movies. <laughs> Remember, in the Dark World, he had that loopy blackboard that actually featured several theoretical physics concepts that ended up being true in this movie. Things like Schrodinger's cat, referring to the quantum theory in which an unobservable thing exists in multiple states until we look at it, just like the multiple realities that this movie's version of time travel creates, or the way our brains were like, oh, okay, but also like, wait, huh? As we watch this stuff, someday I'm sure they will call it Schrodinger's Loki. You'll see why. Stark reignites the debate he had with Cap in Age of Ultron, bringing back up this image of a suit of armor around the world and them losing, but losing together. That scene in Ultron was the origin of Endgame as the title of this movie. We're the Avengers. We can bust arms dealers all the live long day, but that up there, that's, that's the Endgame. Sounds like a good title. So Rocket now is wearing this slick blue suit, which is a nod to the blue button jumpsuit he wore in the 2008 Guardian comics by Dan Abnett and also Andy Lanning. And he explains that Thanos using the Infinity Stones created, it's my favorite part of the movie actually, it's real subtle, an unprecedented energy surge. We know that the stones emit gamma radiation, mm. right? Which gave Bruce Banner his powers. So this wave of energy could have a side effect that resulted in, boom, mutants all over the universe being introduced in the MCU 
right now. It's right here. I said it was my favorite part of the movie. That's not true. I love this movie in a bunch of different ways, but X-Men could happen now. <laughs> it's possible. Nebula explains that Thanos' retirement planet is called the Garden, which is another example of how the Mad Titan is being depicted as a spiritual figure, right? In Infinity War, Thanos said that after gathering the six stones, he would I finally rest and watch the sunrise on a grateful universe. He's like the Old Testament God in the book of Genesis who created slash destroyed everything in six phases and now resting on the seventh with this garden kind of serving as the movie's Garden of Eden paradise. So then Thor greets Captain Marvel, but on the table before him are Hawaiian sweet rolls and beer. It's Athena from the Creature Comforts Brewery, and then later he drinks Tropicala from Creature Comforts. So right now, we've already got this indication of how Thor has been carbo-loading into his depression, leading to the melted ice cream appearance he's got going later. Also, then they fly off on the Benatar through a hexagonal wormhole in space. That's the same kind we keep seeing. We saw it in the Guardians movies and in Captain Marvel. That's how they get to Titan 2. And then there's this close-up of Cap's little eye as the stars streak past. It's actually similar to the eye close-up that's in the Stargate sequence. In Film Nerds Know This, 2001 A Space Odyssey, but it's also in the opening shot of Blade Runner. Cap looks at a compass showing a photo of Peggy Carter, his longtime love from another time. Cap keeps her in this compass as a way to symbolize the way that she was his moral compass and the way that she's kind of a North Star guiding his thematic journey in this film. When Cap sat at her bedside in Winter Soldier, she told him, The world has changed. None of us can go back. All we can do is our best. And sometimes the best that we can do is to start over. <laughs> it's interesting now to see how those exact words inspired Cap in Endgame to find a way to go back before the world changed and to start over. Then on Titan 2, Thanos has now retired as a just sweet old man farmer, hanging his armor up as a scarecrow, just like how Thanos actually spends his post-snap retirement in the comics. There's a shot of his injured gauntlet grazing the weird corn stalks. That actually feels like a nod to Ridley Scott's shot in Gladiator. The warrior Maximus is returning home, he keeps dreaming of that, but then ultimately when he finally gets that, it's cause he's died, so really it's just like Thanos' death here that we're about to see. Because of course, the Avengers crash Thanos his dinner, which is real rude, and then they realize he used the stones to destroy the stones. Nebula says, my father's many things, a liar is not one of them. And the movies actually keep making that point. Thanos never actually lies. In Infinity War, he told Gamora, but I never taught you to lie. And in Guardians Volume 2, Quill tells Nebula, You know, you'd think an evil supervillain would learn how to properly lie. Thanos never actually needed to teach his daughters to lie because also it was a failsafe against them ever being able to betray him. And his refusal to lie makes him way more fearsome since every threat he makes is a literal promise. Then Thor goes for the head and killing off Thanos early like this is really a false victory. Now, sure, it's exactly what we wanted Thor to do. And sure, there's a satisfaction in the thud that Brolin's head makes as it's Brolin on the floor, but kind of like seeing Brad Pitt given to his wrath and execute the bald villain of another spiritually based story, Seven, uh, number seven. Like John Doe, death is what Thanos wanted here, and now the heroes are in an even bleaker state. The movie then jumps five years into the future. The screenwriters Marcus and McFeely wanted to evoke that what <laughs> reaction that viewers have to surprising time jumps in TV shows like in Fargo and in Lost. This allows them to actually start over and reimagine each Avenger and surprise us with how they each respond to Lost differently. Post-apocalyptic New York is totally covered in fog with boats moored at Liberty Island and Cap later says that he spotted whales out in the Hudson River since you know fewer boats have made the water cleaner and marine life has been less hunted. But actually if you rewatch that shot, 
spot, you can see surfacing whales right there in the water. Cap sits in a grief support group featuring a big cameo by co-director Joe Russo playing the first openly gay character in the MCU, describing a depressing date that he went on. Russo has played lots of different characters in all of his Marvel movies. The surgeon who faked Nick Fury's death in Winter Soldier, the psychiatrist Dr. Broussard in Civil War, and Bert the photographer in a deleted scene from Infinity War. The group actually is led by another cameo by Jim Starlin, author of the Infinity Gauntlet series and co-creator of the Thanos character. And we move on to San Francisco, where Scott Lang's ex-con van, left stranded after Ant-Man and the Wasp, is now in storage, but the unit number is 616. A nod to Marvel 616, the number of the base reality in the Marvel multiverse from the comics. Actually, if you saw Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, amazing film, the original Peter Parker was from Earth 616, and now the MCU is establishing the existence of multiple realities in this live-action universe. Then the quantum tunnel spits out Scott and he alerts a security guard played by Ken Jeong. If you weren't sure if it was him, yeah, it was him. The Russo brothers worked with Jeong on the sitcom community, and there's actually another community cameo with Yvette Nicole Brown later in the movie. They've also cast community uh, actors Danny Pudi and also Jim Rash in past movies. But here's the thing, Jeong's character, the security guard, he's reading a book by J.G. Ballard called Terminal Breach. It's a 1964 collection of short stories one of which is titled Endgame. Ballard is known for his post-apocalyptic fiction and considering the times, it kind of makes sense that people would be digging this kind of literature. The Black Death of the Middle Ages, which wiped out half of Europe, that actually similarly led to the popularity of dark and really morbid themes in literature and art. Scott finds this memorial set up in the park with names of victims that are, of course, all Easter eggs. One is Roberto de Costa, AKA the mutant sunspot from the X-Men comics. Really the first? firm acknowledgement of the X-Men characters in the MCU. There are also just like a ton of names of crew people who worked on various Marvel films and TV shows, but there's really too many to mention, so let's just like snap through them all. Okay, oh, that, that's good. And then snapping back. Oh, ooh, what was it like down there? Uh, milk. <laughs> and back at Avengers headquarters, Natasha holds a conference call while making a sandwich, cutting it diagonally, which maybe is a nod to Nick Fury, who in Captain Marvel he revealed he refuses to eat sandwiches diagonally. Maybe Natasha cuts her sandwiches that way as a force of habit to keep Fury's flurking hands off her lunch. Also, during this call, Okoye mentioned an underwater earthquake, which could be establishing the existence of Namor and Atlantis in the MCU. They're at battle with Wakanda in the comics at various times, so so we could be setting that up right now. Also, Carol Danvers just got a call out. Cute new haircut. Not loving it, but hey, you do you. It does reflect a look that she has in the comics and also when she turns to Rhodey and she gives him that longer look than normal saying, be careful. That actually could be a nod to the romantic relationship between Captain Marvel and the actor Don Cheadle in the comics. <laughs> or wait, no, War Machine. And on the chair beside Natasha, some ballet slippers are visible. This suggests that Natasha's probably returning to her ballet training from her youth in the KGB, perhaps as a way to keep her focused and centered, maybe as a form of self-discipline. Scott Lang shows up with the van, babbling about time and the quantum realm and how the past five-year period actually felt like only five hours to him. Janet Van Dyne, if you remember, hinted at the existence of time vortexes in the quantum realm in Ant-Man and the Wasp. And don't get sucked into a time vortex. We won't be able to save you. This leads them to the new home of Tony Stark. Everyone's on farms! <laughs> Stark's fulfilling his retirement dream that he mentioned back at the end of Age of Ultron. Maybe I should take a page out of Barton's book, Build Pepper a Farm. 
Hope nobody blows it up. Pepperidge Farms. Oh look, my God. It's the whole time, whole time. His daughter is Morgan, the name he brought up to Pepper early in Infinity War. She wears a blue Iron Man helmet, which Tony says he was making for Pepper, joking that she never wears anything he buys for her. He's foreshadowing the later reveal of Pepper's new rescue armor revealed in the final battle. Then Tony compares Scott's time heist plan to the plot of Back to the Future. And when Scott says the rules are to never bet on sporting events or meet your past self, those are obviously things that Marty McFly does in Back to the Future Part 2. The whole endgame plot, though, is actually structured pretty similarly with the heroes sneaking around their past selves in the background of scenes from past films, falling in love with their mothers. It's real amazing. The screenwriters actually said that they brought in professional theoretical physicists. They brought them in to consult on this story, and they told them that real quantum physics do not follow Hollywood rules. One of those physicists might have been David Deutsch from Oxford, whom Stark name drops here. Quantum fluctuation messes with the Planck scale, which in turn triggers the Deutsch proposition. David Deutsch is one of the world's leading proponents of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which proposes that alternate histories and futures exist, which is really the basis of the version of time travel in Avengers Endgame. Deutsch travel. Moving on to the reveal of Bruce Banner, who has now merged his brain with the brawn of the Hulk, kind of like Eric. He's adapted from the Professor Hulk version of the character in the comics. The screenwriter said that while working on Civil War, they were inspired by the old Marvel What If comics and dreamed of pursuing wild hypotheticals for the Avengers in Endgame. Like, what if the Hulk is a smart celebrity? What if Thor is fat? What if Hawkeye becomes a murderer? <laughs> and also the broader what if of just what if the Avengers lost? There's also a few more cameos here. The kids who asked for autographs from Hulk are Joe and Anthony Russo in disguise. Or no, it's actually their niece and nephews. The older one actually cameoed in Winter Soldier too as the boy who recognized Cap in the museum. Stark looks at a photo of himself and Peter Parker. Notice the certificate from Stark Industries is upside down because this is just a fake photo to convince Aunt May that Peter's internship was legit. There's also a nearby photo of Howard Stark, Tony's father, hinting at Howard's appearance later. Stark cracks the code of time travel by running a simulation on an inverted Mobius strip. This movie's version of, I guess, folding a napkin in half and poking a pencil through it. And Stark puts his daughter to bed. Love you tons. I love you 3,000. Adorable. Because Morgan is referencing the fact that a ton equals 2,000 pounds, so she loves Tony 3,000. Truly, her father's daughter. But he said, love you tons, which would be 4,000, so she might she's, just be she's like- She's a kid. Yeah, she's, she's a child. She's learning. Stark also rejoins the team and says Scott's hilarious age fluctuation was the result of the EPR paradox. That's actually the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paradox. It's also connected to the idea of Schrodinger's cat, basically that subatomic particles change when they're observed and measured. So Scott meddling in the quantum realm made it too chaotic to control. So Stark's solution are these quantum realm wristbands that allow you to move through time rather than time move through you. Stark tells Cap, I just want peace. Flashing from a peace sign. It's a nod to their past rivalry. And it's also not actually the opening scene of Iron Man. Yeah, peace. I love peace. I'd be out of a job with peace. Stark seals the deal by returning Cap's shield restored after its damage in Civil War. But even more interesting, Stark also removes a reddish-orangish briefcase from his trunk. Leaked set photos revealed that this briefcase was labeled BARF! for Stark's binary augmented retroframing memory tech in Civil War. We don't see Stark explicitly barf in Endgame, but he might have used it to help the Avengers scan their memories about their encounters with Infinity Stones in the past, or to help record his post-mortem goodbye to Pepper and Morgan that projected out of his helmet later. So moving on to the new Asgard colony located in Tonsberg, Norway. This is the same location that Odin actually fought the Frost Giants in the first Thor movie, and it's the location of the church where the Tesseract was hidden. In Ragnarok, Odin sat on these Norwegian cliffs telling Thor, Remember this place, home. 
in the comics, Asgardians establish a similar colony on Earth, a floating city, though, of Asgard near Broxton, Oklahoma, which is real creepy to citizens of normal Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah, a bit more picturesque in Norway. <laughs> we get confirmation that the other Asgardians, led by Valkyrie, were spared by Thanos in the beginning of Infinity War. And then we meet my favorite character in this movie, Fat Thor. The best response to the gratuitous shirtlessness that Chris Hemsworth has brought into the MCU more than anyone else. He lives with Meek and Korg from Ragnarok. Korg is voiced by Ragnarok director Taika Waititi, and he wears the same pineapple shirt that Waititi wore at Comic-Con. Korg plays Fortnite and asks Thor to scare away a troll named Noobmaster69. I am going to fly to your house, come down to that basement where you're hiding, and, and rip off your arms and shove them up your butt. Maybe it's just me, but doesn't this kind of seem like a nod to the furry, flabby roommate Ehrlich Bachman in Silicon Valley who defended Richard from the neighborhood bullies? You get in your house and you get me five Adderall or I'll slit your throat. You understand? I'll kill your mother. I'll rape your father. I'll curb stomp that little face so hard that your teeth will go flying, you little yeah, that might be a reference they're making in a Disney movie. Yep. Speaking of psychopaths, Natasha finds Hawkeye in Tokyo, and as she flies in, half of the city's buildings have the lights off, reflecting half of its residents being gone. Hawkeye has taken on the Ronin incarnation, finally, of this character. He's a lone Japanese warrior. He kills the Yakuza boss Akihiko, a Yakuza villain from the Marvel comic. He and Clint face off in a long, unbroken sword duel, and the filmmakers were able to pull this off because Akihiko is played by badass Japanese actor Sonata Hiroyuki, who has played a ton of Yakuza and samurai roles all over the place, including Shinjin Yoshida in The Wolverine. Back at HQ, Banner, Scott, and Rhodey debate the rules of time travel in this movie. They reference past time travel stories like Back to the Future, Terminator, Time Cop, Quantum Leap, Hot Tub Time Machine. But the first reference is Star Trek, which actually was a direct inspiration for the plot of Endgame. The screenwriters said it was Kevin Feige himself who tasked them to bring time travel into the Endgame story. And Feige has compared the story to the finale episode of Star Trek The Next Generation generation, which featured multiple alternate timelines all having to converge together to save the universe. Rhodey suggests killing Thanos as a baby, a nod to the baby Hitler premise, which we saw play out in Deadpool 2, but Banner explains that time travel in this movie does not result in a ripple effect change to your own timeline. It creates a new branch timeline alongside the original timeline, which remains unchanged. So after a successful test with Clint, the gang comes back together. Stark calls Thor Lebowski because dude looks exactly Exactly like Jeff Bridges playing the dude in The Big Lebowski. Bridges also, though, played Obadiah Stane in the first Iron Man, and Thor being the dude now, it's also kind of a callback to the Guardians marveling at his amazing physique in Infinity War. He is not a dude. You're a dude. This, this is a man. The Avengers then brainstormed their time heist, leading them to revisit the plots of past Marvel films. So amazing, including Thor The Dark World, which Thor drunkenly had been making fun of. Uh, the Dark Elves, ooh, scary. There's that photo of Jane Foster, and that's actually the same image from the first Avengers when Coulson explained why she wasn't in that movie. They realized that three stones were in New York at the same time. The Space Stone in the Tesseract, the Mind Stone in Loki's Scepter, and the Time Stone in the Sanctum Sanctorum in the Eye of Agamotto Necklace, located over on Bleecker Street, Actually, originally the screenwriters said that early drafts featured Tony Stark going to Asgard instead, considering the Aether and the Tesseract were both briefly there at the same time. Apparently, Tony was going to be in an invisible stealth suit and then have to fight Heimdall, who would be able to see him. There were also rejected ideas to go to Morag when it was still underwater, or to go to the Triskelion, and they said that someone was just gonna hop in their car and drive to Doctor Strange's house. Yeah, eventually Joe Russo just said, hey, this is Avengers Endgame, why don't we just go back to the first Avengers? And everyone's like, shut the front door. And real quick, the side details of 
this brainstorming session are amazing. Hulk eats this ice cream flavor, a hunk of hulk of burning fudge. Remember that was the Ben and Jerry flavor, a favorite of Wong in Infinity War. A hunk of hulk of burning fudge is our favorite. That's a thing? And uh, yeah, Nebula just can't use chopsticks apparently. So Cap gives his pre-mission speech and they throw their hands in and it creates this really cool visual that they really focus on from that above shot. Tony Stark's original arc reactor has that same design that their fists are making over the time travel device. Uh, platform. Uh, platform, sure. All of that is actually foreshadowing that original arc reactor's return in the funeral scene. It also foreshadows the weakness that Tony's old school arc reactor contains, which present day Tony actually is gonna exploit. Also that hands in shot is similar to the cover of the issue of the new Avengers in which the Marvel Illuminati used the Infinity Stone to reassemble the Infinity Gauntlet. So the Avengers then zip down into the quantum realm flying through time vortexes, vortexes. They resemble wormhole tunnels that each split off in different directions reflecting the branched timelines that these disruptions of the main timeline will cause. Okay, let's break down each stone mission one by one. First, let's talk about the Time Stone, which they retrieved by going to the Battle of New York from the first Avengers film in 2012, but Banner slash Hulk finds the ancient one in the middle of this battle on the roof of the Sanctum Santorum, confirming that sorcerers were actually helping in this battle of New York just behind the scenes, kind of protecting the, uh, their own turf. Just the roof of their building. Now, you might be saying that the ancient one was not the guardian of the New York Sanctum before Strange. Remember, that was Master Drew. But maybe Drum was just on the ground level here and the Ancient One was giving back up on the roof and yeah, everyone wants to see Tilda Swinton again. The Ancient One knocks Banner out of his Hulk body into the astral plane just like she did to Stephen Strange when they first met in Kamartage. And even though it's four years before Strange will even become a Sorcerer, the Ancient One is aware of him and his destiny as Sorcerer Supreme. Since remember, she does have the Time Stone, she probably uses it to see into the future. So I guess if the Ancient One made anyone else aware of Strange's future general importance, that might might explain how Hydra considered Strange a person of interest in 2014. Bruce Banner, Stephen Strange, anyone who's a threat. So the Ancient One draws a big timeline and explains to Banner how removing the stones causes the timeline to split into branch realities. Her theory of timeline meddling was actually established already by Mordo back in Doctor Strange. Temporal manipulations can create branches in time. But Banner then tells her that Strange willingly surrendered the time stone to Thanos and a little light goes on above the Ancient One shining off her forehead. We all got excited because suddenly all of our theories that Doctor Strange had a mysterious plan involving timelines were kind of confirmed, except they weren't exactly what was sort predicted, but they were very close. Enough, close. <laughs> the Ancient One said she was unable to see past her death, but she trusts that future Strange will know more about the complexities of timelines than anyone else could. Next, the Reality Stone. In either form, in Asgard back in 2013, during the events of Thor The Dark World, Loki, Jane Foster, and Thor's mother Frigga reappear from that movie. Frigga asks Thor what's wrong with his eye, and he says that it was injured in the Battle of Harrikin, which is a callback to when he and Sif recalled the Battle of Harrikin in the Dark World. I remember you celebrated the Battle of Harrikin so much that you nearly started the second. There's actually another really cool MCU Easter egg in Asgard here. But first, thank you to Honey for sponsoring this breakdown. Honey is a free browser extension to save you money when you shop online. When you buy anything, if you're not actively shopping around for the best deal, then you're probably not getting the best deal. But Honey actually takes care of that for you. So when you shop online, Honey scans the internet for coupon codes and other discounts. Then it automatically applies that coupon with the biggest savings to your cart at checkout. It's like magic. 
Magic. It works on over 20,000 sites like Amazon, eBay, GameStop, Best Buy, and more. And it takes zero effort to install, really just two clicks. By going to joinhoney.com slash newrockstars, anyone can use Honey because it works for practically anything you buy online. In fact, 10 million people are currently already saving money with Honey. 10 million people, that's insane. Just look at these reviews actually from other Honey users. Carity said if you order stuff regularly without using Honey, you're actually throwing money away. And Alicia said, I'm not one to use products, services, et cetera, that I see YouTubers promote all that often, but after seeing someone talk about Honey, I had to try it, and let me tell you, it's incredible. Now, this might sound too good to be true. I get it. It's like, wait, this is free, and it saves you money? What's going on? But when you use a coupon code provided by Honey, this is how it works. They earn a small commission from the merchant, and then they pass along some of those savings to their members. It's a win-win for everybody. There's really no reason not to start using Honey today. It's free to use and easy to install on your computer in just two clicks. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash newrockstars. That's joinhoney.com slash newrockstars. And thanks again to Honey for sponsoring this breakdown. Couldn't have done it without you. Mwah. Okay, back to Asgard. When Thor reconnects with his mother, he drinks the same Asgardian liquor that he and Cap shared with Stan Lee in Age of Ultron. This was aged for a thousand years. The barrels built from the wreck of Brunhill's fleet is not meant for mortal men. Neither was Omaha Beach, Blondie. Stop trying to scare us. And after Rocket steals the ether out of Jane, the Asgardians chasing him shout, Stop! Rabbit! Apparently, Rocket just looks like all the Asgardian rabbits. This means that Asgardian rabbits are like pretty jacked. They're oh, like yeah. big dudes. Uh, next, the Space Stone and the Mind Stone are in Avengers Tower and is back in the Battle of New York in 2012. One really cool thing about this sequence is the way that it connects the dots between the end of the first Avengers movie and what it came after. We've always wondered some details here. For instance, he previously had just shown up randomly with like this mouth gag on, which could have been uh, for a bunch of weird reasons, but actually it was because it was slapped <laughs> on him by Thor after Loki wouldn't stop impersonating the other Avengers, like Cap setting up Loki's later Cap impersonation in the Dark World. Then Agent Sitwell, Brock Rumlow, and Secretary Pierce, they all show up and they're all secretly part of Hydra. So when they take Loki's scepter, Sitwell mentions bringing it to Dr. List which finally explains how he came to have the scepter in the beginning of Age of Ultron. Cap, of course, then retrieves it in a callback to the famous So Good elevator scene from Winter Soldier, but he avoids the fight completely by just whispering, Hail Hydra, which is actually a reference to the comics where Cap is actually potentially a member of Hydra and has a similar little speech bubble. Yeah, that awkward time in Cap's history we all just forget about. <laughs> in the lobby, Thor says that they are headed to lunch, a nod to the shawarma post credit scene after Avengers, and Tony has Ant-Man restage the armor infiltration from Civil War on his past self, knowing that in 2012, that was before he got his arc reactor surgery in Iron Man 3. And that old school arc reactor would make that version of Stark vulnerable to sudden cardiac arrest as he was in the first Iron Man movie. But Stark is such an expert in the timeline of his own armor generations that he knew an electric shock from Thor's hammer wouldn't kill him. Because remember, in the first fight of that movie with Thor, the lightning just supercharged his suit. In every MCU film, the new Iron Man armor fixes vulnerabilities that were exposed in previous films. Kind of like that nanotech armor in Infinity War was just a way to prevent Ant-Man from being able to slip in the cracks, as he did in Civil War. But Tony's knowledge here of his own history allows him to exploit a previous flaw in his own system. So then Cap uses the same tactic to defeat his past self and score the Mind Stone. The two Caps have the great fight with the younger one saying, I could do this all day, which the old man is rolling his eyes saying, oh, I know. But present Cap breaks the headlock by saying, 
Bucky is alive. Which, yeah, that's the MCU equivalent of save Martha. But actually, it's not just that, because present Cap is actually remembering his fight with crossbones in Civil War when Rumlo distracts him and breaks his concentration by bringing up Bucky. Hey, pal, your buddy, your Bucky. What did you say? Martha! Stark almost got away with the Space Stone, but his past self forcing Hulk to take the stairs caused Hulk to smash through the door and hit present Stark. Later in the movie, Stark says that the past has a way of messing back with you. So present Stark also walks away from this meddling with a few bruises thanks to his past self getting back at him. 2012 Loki snatches the Tesseract and portals away, creating probably a new branch timeline, most likely. But this forces Stark to think back on the last time the Space Stone and extra pin particles were in the same place and he realizes that in 1970 his father Howard Stark worked with Hank Pym at the shield base at Camp Lehigh in New Jersey. That is the camp where Steve Rogers trained in his first movie and where Cap realized Hydra had corrupted shield and Winter Soldier. That base got destroyed then. So Stark and Cap jump again and here we see the final Stan Lee cameo. He plays an anti-war hippie who drives past a military base shouting, make love, not war. But actually the bumper sticker on the car also reads, enough said, which was one of Stan's catchphrases and how he would end his soapbox editorials. Also, Cap's stolen uniform has the name Roscoe on it. Roscoe Simons was the name of the character who briefly took over the Captain America mantle when Steve Rogers became Nomad in the comics. Meanwhile, Tony's stolen blazer features the old school S.H.I.E.L.D. logo from the comics. This whole time heist seems to borrow a bit from the Christopher Nolan movie Inception, which is a similar group heist that featured perfect timing and layers within layers. And here, in this deepest layer, while stealing the Tesseract, Tony Stark has a cathartic reunion with his father, much like the father-son catharsis at the bottom layer of Inception. Howard Stark finds Tony saying that he's looking for Dr. Zola, a reference to Zola, the Hydra operative who secretly corrupted S.H.I.E.L.D. And Cap finds Peggy Carter's office, reminding him of his wonderful North Star in this movie. And then he goes into Hank Pym's lab, where he passes the original Ant-Man helmet from the comics, and he steals some Pym particle vials. Now, we'll break down all the complicated timeline ramifications another timeline, but we should note that it's not really clear whether Cap ever returns these Hank Pym particles. So these missing vials could be the source of Hank Pym's distrust of Howard Stark. Did you turn me into your errand boy? And now you try to steal my research? Howard's driver is actually Edwin Jarvis, the origin of Tony's Jarvis voice and the AI that would later become Vision. He's played by James Darcy, who actually plays Jarvis in the Agent Carter TV series. And this is actually the first character to cross over from Marvel TV to the films. Sorry all those promises to the Netflix actors. And moving on to the Power Stone on Morag, the planet in the beginning of the Guardians of the Galaxy in 2014, Natasha kicks in Orloni, which is exactly what Peter Quill did to that thing in the opening credits of Guardians. Uh, and we once again hear Redbone's Come and Get Your Love from the Volume 1 mixtape, but I love this so much, and it's also a Back to the Future reference, uh, just being able to see things from a different perspective now. And that perspective has Nebula and Rhodey hearing Quill singing it out loud from a distance, but they can't hear the music, it's in the soundtrack. So them look like even more of an idiot. They were able to grab the orb from the temple easily enough, but Nebula gets stuck behind because her network gets crosswired with past Nebula, who along with Gamora was still a child of Thanos here. When the sisters realize that Thanos has found the first Infinity Stone, Gamora expresses some hesitation. Well, it's the first of six. Her subtle doubt here masks a hidden concern about Thanos' overall plot, 
which will later justify Pascamore's sudden decision to switch sides. And while learning about Nebula's connection with the Avengers, past Thanos calls them unruly, which is a nod to the post-credits scene that revealed the MCU Thanos, in which the other described the Avengers this exact way. They are unruly, and therefore cannot be so I'm going to die suddenly when Ronan stabs my neck. I don't remember that part. Yeah, he just, yeah, time stone. And finally, the Soul Stone on Vormir, which Nebula earlier described as a dominion of death at the very center of celestial existence. Her use of the term celestial could be a nod to Marvel's Celestials, their ancient godlike beings whom we know from the Collector's story in Guardians of the Galaxy, and they have a history with the Infinity Stones. Red Skull told Thanos that the Soul Stone has a special wisdom unique to the other stones, Perhaps the Celestials established a Soul Stone on Vormir with a Stone Keeper and this blood sacrifice, all to make it extremely difficult for anyone to gather all the stones. As Clint and Natasha head to Vormir, Clint says, we're kind of a long way from Budapest. Referencing the backstory between these two, alluded to in the first Avengers movie. Just like Budapest all over again. You and I remember Budapest very differently. They also pronounce it differently. <laughs> in Captain Marvel, Nick Fury mentioned only ever working in cities that begin with the letter B, leading some speculation that the Black Widow solo movie could be a prequel with Hawkeye and Fury, finally showing us whatever the hell happened in Budapest. And when these two meet Red Skull, he greets them as Natasha, son of Ivan, Clint, son of Edith. Remember, Red Skull greeted Thanos as Son of Alas. Alars being the name of his father. The fact that Red Skull greets Clint as son of Edith Barton, his mother, could be a nod to the comics where Clint was abused by his father and was really more connected to his mom. Perhaps Red Skull, as the keeper of the Soul Stone, has some insight to see which parental figure really defined your soul and identity. Natasha says she never even knew her father named Ivan, so some are saying her father could be Ivan Vanko, Whiplash from Iron Man 2, but I don't think so. Ivan is also one of the most common Russian names. Yeah. Also, after a heartbreaking but kind of badass struggle, Natasha sacrifices herself so that Clint can get the stone, restaging the exact same pose and the exact same music of Gamora's death in Infinity War. Natasha dying here means that the Gamora of this timeline never needs to. It's a life for a life balance as all things should be. That brings us to the end of the second act and as we're looking ahead at this third act we realize there is so much more that we want to break down. So many easter eggs, so many connections to everything else and this has been a long video. It's a three hour long movie we're breaking down so we want to give this next act its due diligence and really the third act of the movie is pretty much its own movie all on its own so we're going to break it down in a separate breakdown. It's going to come out tomorrow if it's not up already. We're going to explain the insane amounts of easter eggs and Marvel cameos, how this new Thanos makes the Thanos from Infinity War look like a saint, and how the hell Cap left this timeline or timelines. Like, I bet you're wondering, did he have to interact with Red Skull again to get the Soul Stone back? Can you put the Soul Stone back? Who knows? We'll cover that all in that next video. But for the meantime, let us know which past timeline you wish Endgame spent more time exploring. Comment down below with your thoughts. Also, keep an eye out for part two of this breakdown. And subscribe to the new New Rockstars Marvel podcast. It's called Inside Marvel. This is going to be on there. The next one's going to be on there. And mind blown, the podcast will have this content sooner. So if you can't wait, go there. Get it as soon as you can. Anywhere you get your podcast, iTunes, Spotify. Follow me on Twitter at FEMO and on Instagram at Philip Molina. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EA Voss. Thank you guys so much for watching. We, we did it. Oh, wait, no, we have a whole other video. Oh, again. God, no. Oh, boy. Oh. We'll go back to work. <laughs> <laughs>